0: Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here today, and thanks especially for praying for me as I prepared to teach on these 12 verses we find here as we conclude Mark chapter 6. By way of introduction, I want to say that as I began studying these verses and reading different commentaries, I realized I could go several different directions with this message. So I was undecided for a while And then God seemed to keep pressing one particular thought, and uh, little did I realize weeks ago when I started this, what would happen in the events of each of your lives, or some of you at least this week. What God prompted me to talk about is storms. Oh, not the physical storms we see here in this picture, or the disciples' experience in the boat, Although such storms can be frightening and even life-threatening, what I am referring to are what I would call the turbulent storms of life. You may or may not have heard, but it's a fact that when it comes to these storms of life, there are basically three places you can be. You are either in a storm, and I know firsthand that many of you went through... Significant storms this week. Mark Alesco's in the loss of Bob. Ralph, who many of you know, lost his father this week. Um, Ezra and Ashley with Colton in the hospital. I know there's others of you that have gone through turbulent storms this week. So you may be in a storm. Or, secondly, you may be coming out of a storm. Again, many, many of you may be looking back at a storm you just came through. Or lastly, you're heading into a storm. You know nothing about that at this moment in time. This fact applies to every single one of us. Each of you sitting here in this sanctuary and all of those of you viewing online. It's a given that storms touch every, every single life. Therefore, whether you are a Christian or not, stormy situations will arise. And likened to our passage today, it could be actual physical storm, like a tornado. Could be a mental storm, an emotional storm, possibly even a spiritual storm. And these storms of life can be experienced in almost any place, in our in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our health, in our employment in our church, and yes, like the disciples, even in a boat. Such it is in our scriptures for today, we read that the disciples got into a boat and took out across the sea, and to their surprise, even in their obedience to Christ, the disciples ran directly into a storm. Yes, even in obedience, God literally took them into the nucleus of a disastrous storm. I wish I could tell you that following Christ means you will never have to face any of these kinds of storms. I wish I could tell you that following Christ means that the waters of your life will always be calm. I wish I could tell you that following Christ means every single day will be rosy. There will be no more trials. But I can't say that. This is confirmed in our text as Christ's own disciples who were definitely following Christ's commands ran directly into rough seas. They discovered, as many of us have also discovered, you can be both in the center of God's will and still in a turbulent storm. Now, much to the contrary, there may be some preachers or authors today telling us that if you follow Christ, you will never have to face any trials in life, but that's simply not true. That wasn't for Christ, nor his disciples, nor for anyone else I know who followed the Lord. Simply put, following Christ doesn't offer immunity from troubles, but what it does do is give the opportunity to trust Him and to be strengthened by Him in the midst of such storms. It all comes down to who you believe is in control. Is it a sovereign God who has dominion and power over everything, or is it simply bad luck, or you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you got up on the wrong side of the bed that morning? I hope you'll see today that any storm in love life is from our sovereign Lord, and in his goodness, he uses these storms to mold our character through sanctification to be more conformed to his ways. So I call this message, Strengthened by the Storms. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage and just directing me this way. I thank you for the fact that you are sovereign, that you are in control of everything, even in the the midst of a a turbulent storm. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be precise, truthful, and that uh, your word would be spoken here in a way that would honor you. So just bless our time together as we look at these verses. In Christ's name, amen. I broke this sermon up into four sections, the first one being verses 45 and 46, so follow along as I read. And straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. I call this, the Lord sent them into the storm. I don't know about you, but even in the simplest things in life, we often miss the point. In my office where I work, we call this dilemma failing to connect the dots. Or a more generalized term would be missing the forest for the trees. In other words, it, is, it often isn't what, that we don't hear what is being said, or we don't see what is happening. It's just that we simply fail to put everything together to understand the primary issue as a whole. For example, I heard one man say one time when waiting for a callback on a job offer, once I started to connect the dots, I realized that if they hadn't called me by now, I probably wasn't getting the job. In other words, he finally understood and clearly saw the picture. I believe that is what is taking place here with the disciples as we see later on in this account, they simply fail to connect the dots. How I trust you remember that we've seen time and time again Christ in his mighty hand of power. He has calmed an earlier storm. He has cast out demons. He has healed the sick and has even raised the dead before their very eyes. And then in this chapter, we have seen after Christ delegated his authority to these 12 disciples, even they themselves witnessed this power as they spread out across the land, preaching and healing and casting out demons, performing incredible supernatural deeds just as Christ had done then as Kent taught last week when Christ challenged the 12 to feed the multitude of people maybe 20,000 or more they were lost only to witness Christ as the one who would step in and multiply the food so I just want you to keep that thought in mind as we go through this passage our first verse here is verse 45 not surprising, we again see Mark's favorite word jumping out at us right away, straightway. Straightway or immediately, he constrained or he compelled his disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side unto Besida. Why the urgency? Why would he send them away? Why did he also send the multitudes of people away as well? Did he want just some time alone? Most commentaries say that the answer is found in the parallel passage of John 6, verses 14 and 15, which says, Then those men, the people, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that a prophet should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So this passage would surmise that there would be an immediate danger to christ and therefore he sent them all away however i believe the answer is even more than that for two specific reasons the first we find in verse 46 christ wanted time to pray to pray alone to his heavenly father and therefore he departed to a mountain even in his busy schedule making time to pray was a priority we saw this earlier in Mark, in Mark one thirty-five. And in the morning, rising up great while before day, he Christ went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. So I thought about that Christ example of prayer. How he, as the Son of God, prayed. How much more do we, as the children of God, need prayer? I thought after a long, difficult day spent ministering to the spiritual and physical needs of the multitude, Christ was probably exhausted. Yet the hard day drove Christ to prayer, not from prayer. I asked myself when I am exhausted after a long day, does that drive me to prayer or from prayer? But in addition to prayer, I think there was definitely a second reason and that Christ was preparing a way to increase the faith of his disciples by sending them into a mighty storm, a storm to test their faith and, if you will, to connect all the dots. Did he know a storm was coming? Of course he did. He was the one who precisely planned it all out. The truth is that God knows about every storm taking place in our lives. Now some people may have trouble with that truth but in reality realizing that God is in control should bring us great comfort. For each new experience of testing almost always demands of us more and more faith which in turn helps us to grow in the Lord. And that is the thrust of an application point I want to leave you with here. Christ sends us into specific storms so that we would grow in our love in our faith, in our trust for Him. Over the years, I've heard it said so many times by Christians who have gone through tremendous trials, and the question is asked of them, how did you do it? How did you weather that storm? I can never go through a trial like that. And in almost every single time, I hear the answer from that person, his response or her response is, by God's grace he is the one it's always he is the one that has held me up and how true that is in our own minds and our own strength none of us could do it yet with God all things are possible so, so what about you in the midst of a turbulent storm do you see God's hand in it and totally put your trust in him We need to remember that Christ knows all about the storm that is taking place. He knows what he is doing, and I like how one author summarized it. Try to remember that when the hour seems darkest, he will come to us, and we will reach shore. Which leads me to the second section, verses 47 and 48. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land... And he saw them toiling in the rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. I call this second section, The Lord Saw Them in the Storm. Sometime during the evening, we see in verse 47 that the twelve had rowed part of the way to their destination. But as the sun dipped below the horizon, a fierce storm came upon the Sea of Galilee, an event that probably occurred frequently then, even as it does today. As Ken explained several weeks ago, the surface of the sea lies some 686 feet below sea level in a deep gorge. And during a storm, winds whip down through this gorge and churns the the sea into a choppy nightmare for small boats. One author actually stated, and I quote, even today powerboats are periodically worn to remain docked as the winds whip the water into foamy whitecaps. And if you were here that Sunday morning with Kent's book, he actually showed a little video of the sea and what it does today. Then we learn in the latter half of verse 48 that after struggling much of the night, we reach the fourth watch. That's approximately between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. And then it is in we see Christ coming to them, walking on the water. It's so easy to kind of pass over this part. I mean, you probably read it from a child up, even from adult. Christ walked on the water. Christ walked on the water. But if you really think about it, it's a it's a miracle of miracles that he could do that. An amazing account, and I just want you to really consider what's happening here. And then the last sentence forgot to tell you about this. This is a quote by Spurgeon that I wanted to read to you. So we learn here that Spurgeon said, The Christian man may make little or no headway, and yet it may be no fault of his, for the wind is contrary. Our good Lord will take the will for the deed and reckon our progress, not by our apparent advance, but by the hearty intent with which we tug at the oars. And it appears that these men were really desperately tugging at the oars. Yet, were they all alone in this turbulent trial? Not at all. Not at all. Even in the midst of the dark and the blackness of the night, Christ could see them in the boat toiling. the last sentence in this verse, and would have passed them by. What does that mean? My first thought, maybe yours as well, is that he almost missed them. He almost walked by. But that isn't what it means at all. And so that expression of God passing by is an Old Testament phrase found primarily in Exodus 33, when Moses was up on the mountaintop and God allowed a glimpse of his presence by passing by. I want to read that. Exodus thirty-three eighteen through 23 says, And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. It will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. The phrase, to pass by, does not mean to walk by them at all. Rather, it's just the total opposite. It's, it's really a revelation of himself to them as a means of encouragement to trust him in the midst of this storm. He is there. He's revealed. So as we close this section, the application point that I want to leave or impress upon you is a simple truth that Christ saw his disciples in the midst of the storm. He also sees us in the midst of our storms. Though know, it may not seem so as we're crying out to him to be rescued from a situation that seems so desperate in our own eyes, but we can rest assured he sees us and has a perfect plan in place. Our job is simply to trust him, to know he is sovereign, to know he is in control of the storm, and he will deliver us to shore as our faith grows along the way. Psalms 107, 28-31. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them into their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Christ sent them. Christ saw them. Let's move on to the third section, verses 49 to 52. And when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up into them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. I call this section. The Lord secured them from the storm. As we begin this third section, we see that Christ approached them while walking on the water. His intentions were that the disciples would be reassured. He revealed himself to them, and he wanted their faith to, be, to grow. But instead, they mistook him to be a spirit, or some translations use the word ghost. The Greek word is actually phantasma which is a rare term used in the New Testament and can be defined as a visual manifestation of God's supernatural presence connected with fiery smoke, thunder, and darkness. Historians tell us that most Jews were not typically given to superstition, but they did have a healthy appreciation for the spiritual and supernatural realm. Therefore, when they saw something coming towards them that was perceived as a supernatural unknown presence, literally, it drove them to pure fright and terror And as verse 50 says in the ESV, they were terrified. So how did Christ respond? We're going on in verse 50. When Christ saw their fright, he immediately, again, the word immediately spoke these words to them. Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. That phrase here is termed as a tharsio in the Greek. And it literally means to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. This is the kind of encouragement that a commander on the battlefield will shout to his men so that they would remain resolute. And it's the kind of encouragement all of us need to cling to in the midst of our storms of life. Why can we remain firm? Why can we remain resolute? Because Christ tells us that we can trust in these ten important words. Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. I would encourage you, if you have never memorized this verse... This would be a great verse to memorize. In fact, if you look at these three translations, the King James, the ESV, it says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And the NSB it says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And if there is nothing else that you get out of this message, please remember this truth in your next storm of life. Why can we be of good cheer? Why can we take heart? Why can we be courageous? Why don't we have to be afraid? Because we can trust in God's sovereignty. I remember years ago when Barb's grandfather, a pastor all his life, was retired. He was on a little step stool in his garage trying to fix his garage door opener. And he fell off and he broke his hip. This required surgery and rehab for weeks. And during that stormy time, I remember his constant questioning when I would visit with him. If only. If only I had leaned, not leaned that certain direction, causing me to fall. If only I had asked someone else to help me fix the door. If only I had used a tall ladder versus the step stool. How often do we do the same thing? If only. I know I'm so prone to humanly try and figure out all the if only's in life, while really the answer lies in two words, God's sovereignty. Oh sure, do we learn from our mistakes? Absolutely. But do we also realize God God is in control of every situation, and when the storms of life rage upon us, There is one theological truth that brings everything into perspective and provides comfort and rest for our weary souls. It's God's sovereignty. Does that mean man has no responsibility? Absolutely not. If you are foolish, there will be consequences. If I go up on my steep roof to repair some shingles and I don't tie off with ropes, there could be a heartache and a fall yet we must never forget that God's sovereignty can't allow or overrule any foolishness of ours should he so desire to do so. What is God sovereign over? Have you ever thought of the question, what is he sovereign over? It's one word answer, everything. Every single thing. To be sovereign means to have supreme power, or authority, and that is exactly who God is. God is sovereign over creation. Isaiah 45:7. I form the light, I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is sovereign over our salvation, our sanctification and glorification. Romans 8:30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is also sovereign over the affairs of mankind, including rulers and authorities. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water he turneth it whithersoever he will. When we are literally knocked off our feet by an unexpected trial... It is God's sovereignty that brings us comfort and trust as we remind ourselves that nothing happens outside of his sovereign control. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Well, back to verse 50. One other point in this section that I don't want to overlook is that in Matthew's account of the storm, we know that Peter got out of the boat, walking on the water to Christ, and at some point he began to sink. Most commentators feel that this account was left out of Mark's gospel because as we learned when we began this book, there's good evidence that Peter was a contributor to these writings of Mark and maybe even the main source for some of this section. So if this was the case, Peter may have left out the story because he didn't want to be exalted for walking on the water or it was really humbling when he took his eyes off Christ and began sinking. Verse 51 we see an amazing thing happen. When Christ stepped over the waves into the side of the boat, the mighty storm immediately dissipated like a vapor. The storm ceased, the waves died down, and the white caps melted into ripples as the boat righted itself once again. The disciples in this verse were so amazed and marveled, wondered, It goes in to say, beyond measure. Again, the authority of Christ came to the rescue of these men, for he indeed secured them, turning their impossible situation into a magnificent opportunity to teach them. As I said earlier, while they had seen Christ calm an earlier storm, cast out demons, raise the dead, and feed a multitude with a small lunch, why was it this episode that seemingly made them to be so amazed and marvel beyond measure? The answer is found in verse fifty two, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. While well, at first glance this seems like a very critical statement about the disciples, their hearts were hardened. As I studied this out I liked how one commentator described it. The disciples had failed their test because they lacked spiritual insight and receptive hearts. The miracle of the loaves and fishes had made no lasting impression on them. After all, if Jesus could could multiply food and feed thousands of people, then surely he could protect them in a storm. Yet even a follower of Jesus Christ can develop a hard heart if he or she fails to respond to spiritual lessons that must be learned in the course of life and ministry. And I would even add to this last sentence, in the course of life and ministry, in ministry, and the storms of life. Could it be that in many ways we are just like the disciples? That we too develop hard hearts and that we either fail to learn the spiritual lessons God is teaching us in the storms he sends our way? Or worse yet, could it be that we even forget? We forget those lessons we have learned in previous experiences after being safely secured. Simply put, we, we fail to connect the dots. It's been said that each new experience of testing demands of us more, more faith and more courage. But with that requires us to continually grow in our trust of God's sovereignty and not develop a hard heart. Well, let's move on to our last section, verses 53 through 56. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret, and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship straightway, they knew him, and ran through that whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick, where they heard heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages, or cities, or country, they laid the sick in the streets, and besought him that they might touch, if it were but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole." I called this last section, the Lord served those after the storm. It's interesting, these last four verses frequently fall through the cracks of many commentaries, probably because there's not a single word spoken by Christ. You won't find even one person named. No major events take place. No parables to ponder. Just general accounts of healing miracles. Yet these four verses... Shout of Christ serving others out of compassion, 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 compassion. Verse fifty-three tells us that when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And here's a little map. So they were up here at Bethsaida, on the water, down to Gennesaret, down here. So this is the path. As I came ashore, in verse 54 and 55, the people here received them eagerly and even ran throughout the whole region and began to carry sick people in, some even on stretchers, so they could be healed. And then lastly, in verse 56, we're told that wherever Christ went, villages, cities, or in the countryside, as the sick were brought before him and even touched the border of his garment, all were healed and made whole. All. Every single one. Christ's compassion, compassion extending to all. No questionnaire to be filled out to see if you qualified, Christ healed him. He showed compassion. And so it is throughout the scriptures, a common theme can be seen. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Honestly, I don't know about you, but for me, often compassion comes hard. Sometimes it's easy, depending on who it is. Sometimes it's hard. That's why I so appreciate the compassion that I see in Christ. Christ is an example. And I'm really thankful for the continual example of Christ's compassion to me and to you who are his children. The gift of salvation. One of his most compassionate gifts to his children. It is only through Jesus Christ that we are forgiven of our sins and saved from our deplorable condition. And it's all because of Christ and his compassion. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none of the name of the heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. As we close today, I wanted to leave you with just four additional application points God really taught me as I studied this passage. How can we be strengthened in the midst of a storm? First, storms teach us real gratitude. It's easy to be grateful in life when everything's going well. When your job is well, your health is strong, your children are behaving well. But in the midst of a turbulent storm, are you still grateful? James 1 says, My brethren, count it all joy. It's really an application question you need to ask yourself. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or various trials, knowing this, that the trying or testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect in entire, wanting nothing Like the Apostle Paul, really gratitude comes down to contentment. Learning the secret of being content in every situation, even in a turbulent storm. Secondly, storms teach us real peace. Peace isn't the absence of difficulty, it's the presence of God. That's really true, especially as a believer. Paul found while in prison... Is peace, Philippians four seven, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God's presence brings peace, even when circumstances are storming around us. Storms teach us real treasure. In the storms that interrupt life as you know it, what's really value becomes crystal clear. Again, in prison. Paul affirmed this in Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, I count those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but done, that I may win Christ. Storms in this life should remind us that this world is not our final home. Difficult diagnosis, family crises, deep grief, political unrest, even economic woes are stark reminders that this world is temporary. Storms can be difficult. I would even say storms can be brutal at times. But 2 Corinthians 4.17 reminds us that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us as far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then lastly, storms teach us real strength and faithfulness. It is in these times that we realize we're completely dependent upon God. We need him to give us wisdom, to replace our fear with faith, and to give us strength in the midst of any storm. In reality, when you think about it, that's exactly where we need to be. Totally dependent upon God. That's the way God designed us, to be totally and utterly dependent on Him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. For when we are totally dependent on Him, it is then that our faithfulness in a sovereign God grows and matures as we see firsthand how God meets our needs and takes care of us in the hard times. So remember, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the comfort, the strength that you bring us in the midst of a storm. Thank you for the trust that we can put in a sovereign God. Forgive us when we fail to recognize that, when we fail to connect the dots, to truly understand that you are in control. You know what you are doing. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who would demonstrate that trust to others around us as they witness and see us go through storms. And in turn, that, Lord, we can comfort and encourage others with this truth as they go through storms. Lord, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your compassion. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.